Miss Biden White House, their great contrast with Trump was that they were supposed to be the adults. To have this serious F up, that doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence that it's not more than rhetoric that they are the adults. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, January 19th. Today, Tara Palmieri joins me to talk about the batches of classified documents showing up in Joe Biden's possession, including in his garage. Just how much of a political problem does the president have on his hands, and will it damage his reelection chances? Tara and I also discuss what's shaping up to be a blockbuster Senate race in California and why you should pay attention to politics out West. And later, Julia Alexander drops by to talk about Hulu, the streaming video fixation of Nelson Peltz, the activist investor throwing bombs at Disney. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today to talk politics with Tara Palmieri, our resourceful politics reporter in D.C. How are you doing, Tara? Good. How are you? I do want to ask you about a very D.C. story because it feels like this is a story that the political press is obsessed with. I'm not sure the public at large is totally obsessed with it in the way political reporters are, but that is the story about classified documents showing up in Joe Biden's possession at his home in Wilmington, at an office he used when he was vice president. And obviously, the right-wing media ecosystem is seizing on this because the Justice Department is investigating Donald Trump for taking documents to Mar-a-Lago. Just to level set a minute, how much of a political problem do you think this is for Joe Biden, or is this kind of a inside DC story, in your opinion? I think it's a political problem for him because he said it himself on 60 Minutes, it was irresponsible of Donald Trump to mishandle these classified documents. The carelessness with which we were told the Mar-a-Lago documents were splayed in various places, you know, it really hyped the national interest in this kind of crime. I think it's an easy crime to understand as well in the same way that but her emails was. I mean, the idea of someone using a private email server is another very easy thing for people to understand. I don't think the Hunter Biden influence laptop, et cetera, you know, investigation was that strong. I think that if anything, Republicans should have learned from Democrats who tried to tie Trump to foreign influence that it's really hard to prove. And it's not something that a lot of Americans really understand. It's kind of the inside dirty business of Washington. So I don't think that was very strong. But I think people get documents, they get emails, they get things that you can hold and touch their tangible these kind of things, they spin off and have a life of themselves when the other party has a drumbeat. And right now, the drumbeat is having the House of Representatives and having leadership on the oversight committees and these select committees that will inevitably be formed to turn this into an issue. Yes, there is hypocrisy. Both sides are hacks for their parties. When it was Trump, it's not that big of a deal. When it's Biden, it's a huge deal. When it was Trump, it's a huge deal. When it's Biden, oh, it was just a few documents. Questions about transparency. They've known about this since before the election. This Biden White House, their great contrast with Trump was that they were supposed to be the adults. To have this serious F up, that doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence that it's not more than rhetoric that they are the adults. Now, I think it's going to be really difficult for Biden to hit Trump on the campaign trail on this. I think it's just kind of a neutralized topic that can't be addressed. 
in the same way that Mitt Romney really couldn't hit Obama on Obamacare, which was very unpopular because he had instituted a similar policy in Massachusetts. And so I think that it's sort of one of these things where what was a pretty clear-cut, easy thing to hit your opponent on, something that he may have even been indicted on and may still be indicted on, it's kind of politically neutered, I would say. Yeah, it's the perfect whataboutism response for Trump to just say, what about you? I guess my like larger question is, it seems clear that Trump or someone around him took these documents. Trump knew about them because he was asked repeatedly to return them, did not. And that's why the raid happened. Whereas in Biden's case, we don't know the details. I, I agree. Like the Biden White House like was not transparent about this like from the get go. And that's why it's hurting them, even if they are being transparent now. But they're not even being transparent because his spokesperson said last week, there's nothing more to say. There are no more documents. Days later, there were more documents on Friday, Friday and Saturday. It just keeps dribbling out. That was a dumb comment by the White House, <laughs> if that's the case. Yeah. And I think it's easy to understand. And I think they could have got Trump. I think what a lot of Democratic lawmakers say to me is they had the feeling that Garland had the goods on the documents. It's way easier to, to accuse someone of obstruction and mishandling classified documents than it is to get them on inciting an insurrection. Yeah, that is true. It just seems like this case, it would be such political dynamite to charge Trump and not Biden. A hundred percent, which is why Garland appointed <laughs> two special prosecutors so he doesn't have to deal with this, including, in Biden's case, a special prosecutor who was appointed to U.S. attorney under Donald Trump. You know, I guess the, my final note on this, though, is both of these stories play into pre-existing narratives about both. And, you know, depending on how you look at it, one could be more politically risky or dangerous than the other. One of these is the, the meta-narrative. Trump is a malicious actor who's out to do secret evil things and hide things from the American public, and he's corrupt, and him hoarding documents in Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, theoretically, Jared could sell state secrets to, you know, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the conspiracy theories. That all plays into one narrative. The Biden side of this is he is old, bumbling, disorganized, senile, et cetera. And him not knowing that the documents were in his garage sort of plays into the idea, like you said, he isn't as competent as he promised, but also, you know, he's sort of losing a step and can't keep track of things. The documents just interestingly to me play into the two larger narratives about Biden and about Trump. I think Democrats are going to see it one way and Republicans are going to see it another way. It's really matters how those soccer moms feel about it. But I do feel like, sure, you can say it's whataboutism, but it's literally the same situation. I want to switch gears a little bit because we wrote about this on Puck. And that is the, uh, there's a Senate race already afoot here in California. This won't be till next year. But there are some interesting threads to pull in this Democratic Senate primary that's shaping up out here. Katie Porter, the Orange County Democrat congresswoman elected in 2018, resistance hero, mom with the whiteboard on the House Financial Services Committee, announced she's running for Senate. What sort of jumped out at you at Katie Porter announcing she's getting into this race so early? And then, like, what? why do you think people outside of California should pay attention to this race? Well, Feinstein, Diane Feinstein, who's in the seat, has, still hasn't announced that she's retiring. <laughs> should have said that. <laughs> Although I'd love to see her run for re-election at, like, what it would be, 90, maybe? 91? So we're assuming that she's out. But I do think there's a certain level of deference that is paid 
to people who are currently in the job. And especially since Dianne Feinstein is sort of seen as a trailblazer in democratic politics in California, very close with Nancy Pelosi. I would think she might have some say in her successor because here's the thing, if she decides to retire or leave early, Gavin Newsom gets to appoint her successor. So it wouldn't even be a race, right? Who knows? She might be kind of annoyed that Katie Porter didn't wait till she made a decision or even announced it and says, I'm going to endorse Adam Schiff. She's close with Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi loves Adam Schiff. A big part of the reason why Adam Schiff didn't challenge Hakeem Jeffries for the minority leader roles because he was thinking, I'll run for Senate. That's why he raised $20 million for his own house race, which he didn't really need to. I think it's interesting, too, because it's just such an expensive race and these seats don't open up all the time. I also think, you know, Katie got a little slap on the wrist, tisk tisk on background from potential rivals for announcing in the middle of like historic flooding and natural disasters. She didn't show a lot of tact, I will say. And I wonder if that will come back to bite her. You're the expert on this. Why should we be paying attention to this? I'm still becoming an expert. I'm still learning California. I'm just interested to see who defines the left and who makes the best argument about what Democrats should stand for. I am just curious to see who best makes the argument among those four. Schiff and Porter are both very resistancy. Both will be competing for white college-educated liberals. Elizabeth Warren uh, was the same kind of candidate in 2019. She endorsed Katie Porter, who was her old law school professor at Harvard, very early on. Um, So those two will be competing for money, both nationally and within California, uh, among that sort of white MSNBC college-educated resistancy base. It's interesting to see the other two who haven't officially announced yet, Barbara Lee, you know, she is black. She is a long history of being a staunch anti-war progressive, but doesn't have much of a political capital outside of Oakland and the Bay Area. And then Ro Khanna, he was a big Bernie Sanders surrogate in 2019 and 2020, but he got elected running against a union guy and with tech money behind him. So he can like sort of like talk to the tech people and the neoliberal crowd while also saying I have some credentials among the activist Bernie Sanders side. And so looking at all those people, and again, flashing back to 2019, like who can win Latinos? Who can win Black people? You know, you could possibly win a a Democratic primary right here just by winning those like resistance liberals who watch MSNBC. I'm interested to see if a plurality there might get you a victory in the primary and then send you to the general election next year. I will also say Feinstein doesn't have a lot of political juice left out here. I think people will be happy to see her retire while honoring her her legacy. But she definitely represents a kind of like establishment, moderate politics that doesn't really like have a lot of juice out here, especially among young people, millennials. My biggest takeaway from Katie Porter's announcement, just to cinch it up, is that 34 million people were under a flood watch when she announced. That rain brought the equivalent of 25 Mississippi rivers to the state of California. It killed more people than the last two wildfires in the state combined. And while politics can still happen against the backdrop of an emergency, like, why not just wait a week? You know, like what? It just looked bad. It looked like she was out of touch from the rest of California, especially central and northern California. Parts of it were underwater, maybe because she's from Orange County, which wasn't really affected that much. It's just like Elizabeth Warren in the, in the Democratic primary back in 2020, the thing that ultimately got her in the end was she was supposed to be the policy savant. And she couldn't have an answer on healthcare. Like, how are you going to pay for this? What's your plan? And it just undercut her whole brand. Katie Porter's whole brand is X's and O's, numbers, details, et cetera. She didn't really show a lot of political tact 
both in announcing before Feinstein retired, but also more importantly, like showing some sensitivity to, you know, millions of people and, you know, almost 20 people who are dead and like sending out fundraising emails at the same time. It just looked like off key for her political brand. And I don't know if, uh, if that says anything about her political judgment, but we shall see. There's a long way to go till next June. And also, fittingly, Elizabeth Warren has already endorsed Katie Porter for the seat. So there you go. Yeah, exactly. All right, Tara, thank you so, so much. I want to have you back on and talk more about this document thing because I'm still still interested to see how this plays out nationally and outside of D.C. But thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. When we come back, Ben Landy asks Julia Alexander if Disney should take Nelson Peltz's advice and buy Hulu. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy, and I'm joined by our streaming expert, Julia Alexander. Hey, Ben. Julia, we were just talking on the podcast yesterday with Bill Cohan about Nelson Peltz, the billionaire activist investor who's taken a stake in Disney, and he's agitating for change of the company. He wants a board seat at Disney, which Bob Iger does not want to give him, but that's another story. I want to talk to you about one change in particular that Peltz has asked for, which is that Disney buy from Comcast the remaining third of Hulu that it does not already own. I've been a Hulu subscriber forever, more than a decade. But as you and I were just discussing offline, there is this huge unresolved question of what Hulu is actually worth, especially now that Peltz is in there throwing bombs saying Disney, of course, has to buy the rest of Hulu, which is probably going to drive up the cost. I assume that Disney wants Hulu regardless. But talk to me about how you envision they would actually integrate it into Disney+. Plus. Like if you are a subscriber to Disney and Hulu now, or you subscribe to both of them, how is the experience potentially going to change? 
Hulu remains maybe the most interesting piece of the domestic streaming puzzle because Hulu was never designed to have one owner. Hulu had many fathers and mothers across all these different corporate entities that used it as a way to kind of appeal to the direct-to-consumer crowd before direct-to-consumer was a term that we were using, right? Hulu was born in this moment of the iPhone and the App Store and Instagram and Twitter and these early moments of this is how people are going to consume things and we want to be in a place, but we don't want to invest in our own platform. And so you have all these different companies. Disney throughout the years acquires all these different stakes. They buy out all these different stakes from all these different companies who have ownership. In, and then finally, to your point, Comcast is the last one. And they have basically made an agreement that they will buy out the rest of Comcast share in 2024, January 2024. And there's all these questions about, is it worth it? Right. And this is the Hulu conundrum. On the one hand, when you look at the valuation of Hulu, if you were going to kind of do a quick valuation based on its domestic share, based on its subscribers, based on its average revenue per user, and kind of comparing it to its most comparable competitor, which is Netflix, you kind of do really quick, simple math on it. You go to a point where you could argue that Hulu at that $27 billion, uh, or the stake rather that Disney would have to buy from them, is exactly worth what Hulu should be worth. It is not worth anything more, particularly. It is not worth anything less, particularly. But it's this thing that Disney goes, okay, well, we can either buy it fully and take full operational control and integrate it more into our work, or we can sell it. And if they buy it, the question then becomes, what is its value to Disney? Is it is its value a standalone streaming service that really keeps the bundle afloat? Is a way to kind of juice this idea of what subscribers are getting? Consumers love nothing like they like getting something for free or they like the idea of a deal. And Hulu kind of adds to this deal. Hulu under Iger as a standalone service also means they don't have to necessarily put R-rated content on Disney Plus or take a bunch of content that maybe should not be within a Disney branded app domestically. They can put it on the streaming service. It's a distribution platform for 20th Century and ABC and Disney General Entertainment. That's one argument that as a standalone app, it kind of supports this bundle, which 40% of new subscribers in the last quarter were Disney um, streaming service still subscribers. So there's this whole argument that it's a really important part of this vision for Disney. And presumably they could increase the interoperability between the two as well if Disney has full operational control. Right. People would argue, well, they can just fold 20th century content into Disney Plus and create a streaming service. This is what they do internationally. They introduce Star, and I think they charge an extra like two bucks basically in certain regions. You get access to all the 20th century Fox stuff, which is why when you see those really funny memes, like when Pam and Tommy came out internationally, they were on the same homepage as like WandaVision because it's all one service. And you could argue that that makes a ton of sense. That's obviously Warner uh, Brothers Discovery's big bet that they, they're they going to put a bunch of Discovery Plus stuff into HBO Max. And the idea is that you'll have your 80% passive entertainment being driven by the scripted world of Discovery. And you have the 20% active entertainment being driven by your HBO and your Warner Brothers. But I think what makes more sense for Disney is keeping the bundle and increasing the interoperability between the services. So instead of having completely separated, you have Hulu content that is seen on, Dis on Disney Plus and Disney Plus content that is seen on Hulu. When you click on it, it opens up in the other app seamlessly. This is a keyword here. It only works if this is done seamlessly. And when people are done watching that show or movie, it brings them back to the Hulu homepage or the Disney Plus homepage to increase that level of discoverability, increase that level of value perception, and increase that level of engagement. Well, let's dive into another aspect of why Hulu might be valuable to Disney. They have this big content library you mentioned. They've got all the Fox assets. 
There's also content out there that's going to be clawed back by other services that are ending these sort of content sharing licensing deals that they have with Hulu. There's also the advertising technology. Is that tech stack useful to Disney? Very much so. You could argue, and I have argued in a piece just this week for Puck, that it is one of the best ad tech stacks available right now, especially in the domestic marketplace. Hulu was built as this ad-supported service, right? It was it was designed to kind of be this distribution pathway for advertisers in a changing world. And that has really continued even throughout all of these other streaming platforms coming aboard and them finding ways to build advertising tech. And you see companies like NBC Universal really tout beyond the content of Peacock, the advertising capabilities of Peacock, and Hulu's already had that built in. We talk about the advantages that Disney having Hulu has. One of the best advantages that we haven't really touched upon is a very simple, the best offense is a good defense. And having Hulu and 46 million subscribers, that is a huge advantage to Disney. The big advantage there is that Comcast or whoever might buy Hulu does not have 50 million more subscribers, does not have that advertising. This is the fun part about the Hulu quandary. If Disney hypothetically sells a stake in Hulu, the question then becomes, Disney license out the 20th century and the ABC and the searchlight content, or do they retain that for Disney Plus? There are pros and cons on both sides that you can argue about until the cows come home for days on end about whether or not Hulu is a net positive or a net negative. And I think right now it's a net positive, but also if you are Disney and you have a shared duty to shareholders and you want to be a company that emerges as one of the bigger strains, streaming wars, you do have to look at what's the potential offer that comes in that you can say no to, right? What it's above the value that you're seeing. Do you sell that Hulu stake? That offer has not been reported. At least I've, there's no murmuring of that offer kind of really coming in. For me, Hulu, as it stands right now, is a core piece to the Disney streaming puzzle for the next three to five years. Beyond that, who knows? But the idea of what Hulu is, the way it helps the bundle, the way that it's going to manage churn at a period when everyone is going to be seeing huge amounts of churn in the domestic market, I think is specifically uh, very important to Disney. Speaking of, you know, the best offense is a good defense. I was amazed by the statistic in your piece. If Peacock acquired those 46 million subscribers from Hulu, it would be the biggest streamer in the U.S. behind Netflix, (laughs) which is sort of funny to imagine that um, we'd all have to suddenly take Peacock seriously. Yeah, exactly. When we look at the financial side of the equation, the debt that Disney would bring on is big. No way to play that down. But it's not the same as looking at Discovery acquiring Warner Media and taking on $50 billion worth of debt and being solely a content company and a cable company whose main area of revenue, which is pay TV, is declining. Disney has other areas that they really can pull from in order to help pay that debt off. Reason wrote about it for Puck is because this all started because Nelson Peltz, who came out and said the Fox deal was vastly overpaid, which is true, but that they shouldn't have done it. He mentioned in a comment uh, while on CNBC talking to David Faber that if they don't buy Hulu, they should be out of the streaming game entirely, which I can tell you inside Disney raised eyebrows at the executive level. And I can tell you within the analyst community raised eyebrows because it's this idea, one, that you cannot say in the same interview they should have never bought Fox, but also they need to buy Hulu in order to be in the streaming game. That doesn't make sense. It was because of Fox that they were able to acquire Hulu and be a huge leader in the domestic streaming space. But two... 
comes back to this, uh, this whole conversation that we're having. Hulu is a conundrum with no right or wrong answer. There, You can argue the pros and cons forever. Right now, I'm saying the pro is Disney having it. But in three years, in five years, if economics of streaming change again the way they have over the last two years, who's to say if owning Hulu will be the right call for Disney then? Well put. Well, Julia, thanks as always for stopping by and uh, explaining it to us. And I encourage listeners to check out your piece on Puck.News too, if they want to read more. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.